Now, in addition to the indoxation of the Spirit, the primal epiphany of the Spirit, sanctifying heaven as a temple dwelling, the work of Klein, matching that new relation to the indoxate Spirit, dwelling in the created upper register, you find enthroned as the firstborn over all creation, the Son of God, unfleshed, pre-incarnate, eternal, and living. I'm going to term the Son's relation, uh, the same ontological trinity over here, relations of subsistence and coherence. I'm just putting the, the same ontological trinity now is going to be revealed in a second personal relation. The first personal relation, the first terminal relation is the indoxation of the Spirit. The second um, is the incoronation of the Son. At the right hand of the Father, in the heaven temple, in the absolute beginning. And I want to make explicit that the language of indoxation belongs to Meredith Klein. And I have coined, for lack of a better term, this word, incoronation of the Son, to fill out the Trinitarian picture, as it were, in Genesis 1.1. And so, matching the new relation of the indoxation of the Spirit to the heaven temple is the incoronation of the Son at the right hand of the Father in that heaven temple at the absolute beginning. Both are primal epiphanies, an epiphany of the Spirit and an epiphany of the Son. Herman Ritterboss's insights from Paul on Colossians 1, 15 through 16 can be appropriated here and extended to this concept, this doctrine of the enthronement of the Son in the heaven temple. Uh, this lecture material that I'm giving right now is a compressed summary of the lecture I gave at the 2022 Reformed Forum Conference, but not as extensive, a little more focused. Colossians 1.15a, Ritterboss notes, speaks of the eternal Son of God apart from His incarnation as the image of the invisible God. Ritterboss takes that to mean, and he has many others in the Reformed tradition who interpret this verse in this way, that the Son is the personal and uncreated image of the unoriginate Father in a processional relation of personal origin. Put differently, the image relation consists in the Son being eternally begotten of the Father. And that relation is one of personal coherence and personal indwelling. Image of God refers to a relation between the Father and the Son in a processional relation of personal origin. Secondly, Ritterboss notes in 15b through 16 that the firstborn of all creation marks the new relation of the Son to the created order. And so Colossians 1.15b through 16 
is a textual basis that Ritterboss appeals to for what we're going to term the incoronation of the Son as King over all creation, seated at the Father's right hand. As firstborn, Ritterboss notes, this speaks of the Son's ontological priority over all created things. And verse 16 is explicit that by Him all things were created. The indoxation of the Spirit in the heaven temple is at the same time accompanied by or coincident with the enthronement of the Son in the heaven temple as the firstborn of all creation. Um, Ritterboss's insights in Paul and outline of his theology are scintillating along these lines, and I've given you a very brief summary of them. But at the same time, Herman Bovink, in his Reform Dogmatics, offers unusual depth of biblical insight on these two phrases in Colossians 1.15 and 16 as they are commenting on the absolute beginning of Genesis 1.1. First, regarding the image of the, of the invisible God in 1.15a. Bavink, in his Reformed Dogmatics 2.276, says this, We must consider the name image of God. By way of analogy, it can be applied to humans, but in an absolute sense, it belongs to Christ. Before His incarnation as Logos and Son, Romans 1, 3-4, 8-3, Galatians 4-4, He existed in the form of God, Philippians 2-6, was rich, 2 Corinthians 8-9, clothed with glory, John 17-5, and has now returned to that state by his resurrection and ascension. Thus, Bobbitt continues, he was then and is now the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the reflection of his glory, and the very stamp of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. That is a remarkable summary. Image of the invisible God, according to Bobbitt, denotes the archetypal, eternal, personal image of the Father. It is not a reference to Jesus' human nature. It does not denote assumed humanity. It is not a reference to a human image. It is biblical shorthand denoting an eternal processional relation to the Father. Now, by analogy, Bavink says, and please hear this, it can come to apply to humans. Adam was created as the image of God. Eve was created in the image of God. Both were created in communion with the triune creator. But Bavink's point, Ritterboss's point, the point of Paul in Colossians 1.15a is that Behind this creaturely image endowment is the uncreated, underived image of the Father in the eternal person of the Son. He is the image of the invisible God and as such the very stamp 
of his nature. Bavink says then, quote, As the full image of God, he from all eternity sustained an utterly unique relation to the Father. Bavink says this, As the image of God, Colossians 1.15, he is the Son of God in a metaphysical sense. And so here, Colossians 1.15a is referring to these relations of subsistence and coherence. But he says this, He's the Son of God in a metaphysical sense, by nature and from eternity. He's elevated far above angels and prophets. Matthew 13, 32, 21, 27, 22, 2. Sustains a unique relation to God. Matthew eleven, twenty-seven. He is the beloved Son in whom His Father is well pleased. Matthew 3, 17, Luke 3, 22, 9, 35. He is the only begotten Son. John 1, 18, 1, 1 John 4, 9. He is God's own Son. Romans 8.32, the eternal Son, John 17.5, whom the Father gave to have life in Himself. He is equal to the Father in knowledge, Matthew 11.27, honor, John 5.23, creative and recreative power, John 1.3, activity, John 10.28-30, dominion, Matthew 11.27, John 16, 15. And he was condemned to death precisely on account of his sonship. John 10, 33. End of quote. Do you hear that? This is a wonderfully full and robust summary of classical orthodoxy regarding the eternal and immutable person of the Son who subsists entirely as the divine essence, as the image of God, yet who is personally distinguished from the Father in a relation of coherence. In fact, to amplify what Bavink is saying, when you understand the Son in light of Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity, in light of Hebrews 1.3, the effulgence of glory, the eternal image of God consists in absolute essential equality between the Father and the Son. The essence of the Son is not dependent on or sustained by another Trinitarian person. He's absolutely, and in every sense, identical to the underived and simple essence of God. So image entails essential equality with the Father in every respect, including having deity from himself. The Son is Asse. Yet, in a more specific sense, image brings into view a personal distinction from the Father. He's eternally equal in essence to the Father, yet he is, as image, personally distinct from the Father in that personal relation of origin. So the Son is eternally equal to the Father, yet eternally is distinct from the Father. He images the Father in a processional relation of essential identity and personal differentiation. 
Essential identity flows from homoousios. Personal distinction flows from monogenes. Uh, Essential identity, personal distinction together comprise the meaning of the Son as the image of the Father. This is standard creedal and confessional Trinitarian theology. Note this well. Ritterboss and Bovink affirm that this is the permanent personal identity of the Son apart from relation to creation and in relation to creation. He has this immutable, self-contained, self-existent being in his freely willed relation to creation. And that turns us to firstborn overall creation. Bavink goes on to say this about 15b through 16 in Colossians. He says this, He is the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15, in whom or by whom all things were created, 1.16. Firstborn is in comparison with every creature, but must be understood as existing before every creature. The expression firstborn does not include Christ in the category of creatures, but excludes him from it. Being the firstborn and only begotten as Son and Logos and as the full image of God, He from all eternity sustained an utterly unique relation to the Father. End of quote. Unfleshed, unincarnate, not yet clothed in humanity, not yet assuming humanity. So Bobbing says that firstborn, unlike image, brings into view what? Just as we had a new relation of the Spirit so we have a new relation of the Son to creation. The relation changes, the creatures in the relation change, but the Trinitarian person in the relation remains living and immutable. Bavink says that firstborn therefore is shorthand for the one by whom all things were created in the next verse, verse 16. As firstborn over every creature, the Son is the one by whom all things were made. This denotes His active personal agency in the work of creation. All things, visible and invisible, all things in the heaven temple were brought into existence by the creative agency of the Son. This I take to be an implicit affirmation of his autothean personhood. It is proper for him to be the one both through whom the Father creates, yet the one by whom, through whose agency, actively considered, all things were created. All things are by Him, all things are through Him, 16d. That, in a nutshell, is Bavink's penetrating dogmatic observations regarding Colossians 1, 15 through 16. It's a very sensitive reading for a dogmatician. 15a speaks of the intra-Trinitarian processional relation of paternity and filiation. 
15b through 16 speaks of the Son as firstborn over all things, as the one by whom all things were made. But there's more to say, particularly in light of Colossians 1.15, b through 16. 15b refers to the Son as firstborn over all creation. And that translation ought to be kept in mind. He's not the firstborn within the created order, but the firstborn over it, given the fact that he is the image of the invisible God. But in 16, especially in 16b, Paul presents a direct and expansive interpretation of Genesis 1-1 and focuses on the sovereignly willed relation of the eternal Son of God to all things created in the invisible heaven and the visible earth. Colossians 1.16 presents the sum total of creation, the upper and lower registers, as a comprehensive totality. The structure is a chiastic structure, and it is as follows. In and through the Son's agency, all things were made. Things in heaven, A, earth, B, visible, B prime, invisible, A prime. In the chiasm of 116b, The earth corresponds to what is visible, and heaven corresponds to what is invisible. And so, 116b, when it speaks of the invisible heavens, is denoting precisely what we've talked about in light of Genesis 1-1, in light of Nehemiah 9-6, Psalm 104-1-2, Psalm 11-4, Isaiah 6-1-7, Revelation 4, 1 through 8. It's a terse, inspired, apostolic summary of the creation of the heavens and the earth in the absolute beginning. And the point is that the Son, 16b, is the one by whom all things, heavenly and invisible, earthly and visible, were made. It's an ironclad apostolic confirmation that Genesis 1-1 teaches that in the absolute beginning God created the invisible heavens and earth. This is a sustained cosmic perspective in the scriptures. This is revealed doctrine. The distinction, of course, is that heaven was completed in an instant, whereas the earth was created in an inchoate form, a tohu vavohu, a formless void, and was formed and filled in the space of six days. Heaven was created in its glorious fullness in a punctiliar instant. The earth created in its glorious goodness in a developmental movement. But in the absolute beginning, the eternal Son of God created ex nihilo, the visible heaven temple and the visible earth. This is the inspired apostolic commentary about the new relation of the eternal, immutable, and living Son of God to the cosmic order He created. 
in the absolute beginning. But then, and moving now in 16c, if we can cut it that finely, in 16c especially, we come to what I think is Paul's teaching regarding the incoronation of the Son in the heaven temple in the absolute beginning. Text reads, and, and by the way, it's alluding to Nehemiah 9.6 and Isaiah 6.4. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Given that 16b is a direct reference to Genesis 1.1, refers to the absolute alpha point of creation in the absolute beginning, we ought to see 16c as a reference to the populating of the heaven temple with an angelic host. After Jesus' ascension, Peter and Paul speak of Jesus being exalted into heaven to sit at God's right hand, exalted above the angels and the powers in heaven. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul says, Christ has been exalted to sit in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In 1 Peter 3.22, he says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Ephesians 6.12 is explicit. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In heaven, in the absolute beginning, there were cosmic powers, spiritual forces, angels. Jesus Christ, Paul says, as ascended, is exalted over them all. As it is now, so it was in the absolute beginning. 116c brings into view the incoronation of the Son of God in the heaven temple, in the absolute beginning, exalted above all rulers, thrones, dominions, and authorities. In the absolute beginning of Genesis 1-1, the Son created the heaven temple and populated it with a heavenly host and was enthroned over that host to be worshipped, adored, served, and glorified. He was incoronated in heaven, far above all thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Jeremiah 17, 12 says that there was a glorious throne set on high from the beginning. That was the place of the Son's incoronation. In the absolute beginning, the firstborn over all creation said, Isaiah 66, 1, Heaven is my throne. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Isaiah 66, 1. Amplifying here, Colossians 1, 16c. 
In the absolute beginning, elect angels said of him, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever, and justice is the scepter of your kingdom. Psalm uh, 45 and Hebrews 1, 8 applies this to the Son from the absolute beginning. In the absolute beginning, it was said of him, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 11, 4, which we looked at earlier. In the absolute beginning, all of the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy and took the language, even proleptically, of Psalm 27 upon their lips. They longed to gaze in the temple of the Lord and behold His beauty. This incoronation in the absolute beginning over the angels, Nehemiah 9.6, over the classes of angels, seraphim and cherubim, Isaiah 6, and related texts, is an epiphany of the glory of the Son of God in the absolute beginning. Now, here's the question. How do we relate heavenly incoronation to heavenly indoxation? How do we relate the incoronation of the Son to the indoxation of the Spirit in the heaven temple in the absolute beginning? We can say this. That the indoxation of the Spirit without the incoronation of the Son is empty. The incoronation of the Son without the indoxation of the Spirit is blind. The indoxate Spirit fills the heaven temple with glory, illumines the heaven temple in an epiphanic flash of light and life. But that glory is focused on and reveals the incarnate Son, seated at the right hand of His Father's throne. And so we can say this, that the personal presence of the Spirit sanctifies heaven as a holy temple. The incarnation of the Son regalizes heaven as a royal dwelling place. When you think about the unique terminal acts of the Son of God and the Spirit of God, the Spirit sanctifies the heaven realm as a holy temple. The Son regalizes the, heaven, the realm of heaven as a royal chamber. And this is a distinctively Trinitarian account of why we speak of heaven as a holy place and a royal place. It is tethered to the personal agency, and presence of the Spirit and the Son, respectively. Now let me draw two fundamental implications from this brief summary. The first is that the glory of God, the revelation of His glory, and not man, the salvation of man, has permanent and enduring preeminence. In the confessional, reformed, and biblical theological tradition, exemplified by Gerhardus Voss, 
immutable and living, self-contained Trinitarian persons have preeminence at every point. And indoxation and incoronation enshrines this from the absolute beginning. Enshrines it in terms of relations of subsistence and coherence, and then it offers a creational replication of that glory in the heaven temple. Indoxation centers the Spirit's agency in revealing the glory of the Father and the Son in the holy heaven temple. Incoronation centers the self-contained Son's enthronement in the upper register at the right hand of God on the throne in heaven. To put it simply, or at least concisely, Indoxation and incoronation center the revelation of the self-contained glory of the triune God in heaven as the beatitude of elect men and angels. The second implication follows from the first. Incarnation is ancillary to incoronation since it, unlike incoronation, is concerned with the salvation of the elect who have fallen in and with Adam. The glory of God and not the salvation of man is centered in incoronation. And the, incar and the incarnation, as I said in a previous module, is entirely a redemptive means to a creational end. The Incarnation is not necessary in order for God to relate to the heaven temple or for God to relate to Adam in Genesis 2-7. The Incarnation is a redemptive means to a creational end forfeited by Adam's original sin in the covenant of works. And what Incarnation supplies us with is a sun-centered revelation of glory in heaven wholly apart from and prior to the creation of man, the fall of man, and therefore the need of redemption. It provides a pristine, God-centered environment for the revelation of God's glory. Now let me make two additional and brief applications of this cosmic teaching this teaching about the upper register, indoxation and incarnation. Let me make, and, and there are more uh, observations I could make. I want to keep it to two. Let me bring it to bear on anthropology, the doctrine of man. Here's the thesis. The relations of personal coherence in the eminent trinity supply the ontological ground for Adam as the image of God in covenant fellowship with God. Now, if you want more on that, I wrote a book a while back entitled The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til, and uh, chapters, especially five and six, bring that out in a sustained way. That's review for many of you familiar with that work. But secondly... Here's the second prong of the thesis, and please hear this. The relations of the indoxate spirit and the incarnate son to the heaven temple supply the eschatological destiny for Adam as the image of God and in covenant with God. 
So relations of coherence and subsistence supply the ontological ground for Adam being created in natural religious fellowship and in covenant with God under the covenant of works. Indoxation and in coronation supply the concrete eschatological destiny for Adam and his posterity under the covenant of works. You see, when you understand those two points, when you bring those two points into focus, you start to recognize that cosmology precedes anthropology. Cosmology precedes anthropology. The creation of the heaven temple, the indoxation of the Holy Spirit, the incoronation of the Son, all of this precedes the creation of man who is not brought into existence, male and female, until the sixth day of creation in the lower register on earth in distinction from heaven. And so the dwelling of the Spirit and the enthronement of the Son in heaven forge the end of beatitude for Adam as the image of God in covenant with God. The end or eschatological telos for Adam and his posterity under the covenant of works was confirmed fellowship with the father of the incarnate son in the radiant power of the indoxate spirit in the heaven temple as all things good and earthly were heavenized were transformed and conformed to their heavenly archetype. Now, what I'm wanting to say then, as we move now toward the theology of Karl Barth, is that for Karl Barth, all of this, everything I've said without qualification, he would classify in two fundamental ways. He would say it is abstract and it is myth. <laughs> How's that for an answer? Bart's going to say this is abstract. I'll preview it right now and then I'm going to get into it. It's abstract. Why? Because here they go again, Bart would say. These Protestant scholastics, these reformed, confessional reformed theologians, these Vossians, these Vantillians, here they go again. Immutable, unchanging, self-contained, say Trinitarian persons for Bart don't exist. Secondly, a, a concept of man created six days after God made the heaven temple. That, that humanity is not concrete and true humanity. Divine and human being are given in the same primordial transcendent time event called Jesus Christ. So this idea of Trinitarian persons, immutable and living, filling a heaven temple and then creating Adam in the image of immutable living Trinitarian persons, it's abstract. And secondly, Bart's going to say it's a myth. And here's why. Bart is going to say that Genesis 1-1 is a corrupted text that 
compromised with pagan mythologies and we have to turn away from the witness to Revelation in Genesis 1-1 to the Word of God, which is Jesus Christ, who is the reconciliation of God and man, the revelation from God to man in a categorically distinct time dimension, in a supernal act of grace where both divine and human being are given. So I set this up to help you recognize that from the outset, Bart is going to say, in summary terms, what an abstract myth. He'll reject it in its totality, and he's going to put in its place, and I'm just going to use this in homage to our instructor who began. He's going to put in its place this, and we'll look at that in our next lecture.